Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. We're in chapter 3 of Titus, if you want to follow along. In fact, raise your hand if you'd like some notes. We've got ushers on the side that can get those notes to you. Uh, But Titus chapter 3, we've been going through Paul's letter to Titus. Week 1, we looked at leadership in the church. And then week 2, last week, we looked at living by grace. And today, we're going to talk about closing the gap. So let's begin today reading our passage, Titus 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because his mercy He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and self-condemned. This is God's word. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week by a leader that I respect. And he was talking about the perception of Christianity in America. And it was really interesting. What he decided to do was Google, why are Christians so, and see what would autofill. Google has an autofill feature. As you start typing, uh, the most popular search results start to fill in, and they drop down. You can see all the things that people are searching. And so when he typed in, why are Christians so, what came up was, why are Christians so intolerant, mean, and arrogant. So then he tried, Christians are, to see what auto filled with that. And what showed up was Christians are hypocrites, crazy, ignorant, and annoying. So the other night, I decided to try, why are puppies so? <laughs> and what came up was loyal, cute, happy, and expensive. Google doesn't have a thing against Christians. It just shows the most commonly searched things. In fact, somebody must have complained about this. Because now, when you type any religion, like if you type, why are Christians, as soon as you hit the word Christians, the autofill just stops. It stops filling in. Um, So the point is that Christianity has an image problem. Now, how many of you would agree that God probably wouldn't be happy that his followers Followers are being seen as ignorant, crazy, or mean, right? Okay, but what I find so interesting is that in the days of the early church, if they had Google, the results probably wouldn't have been that different. 
See, Christianity has been misunderstood since its beginning. And the Bay Area, where we live, is an area that doesn't have a reputation for being too friendly to Christianity. In fact, did you know that in the Tri-Valley alone, over 9 out of 10 people don't identify as Christian? Over 9 out of 10 people. This is one of the largest mission fields on the earth. Like We talk about missions as if it's far away, but missions is right here. Over 9 out of 10 people aren't interested in following Jesus. And that's why this church was started. That's why we need more churches. And that is God's purpose for us here. He's calling us to make a difference, to represent authentic Christianity. So how do we respond to this? There's a great book called Good Faith. And I'd encourage um, any of you who are interested in engaging in conversation with people who believe differently than you, especially if you're a Christian, I'd encourage you to check this book out. But it was written by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And what they're exploring in this book is being a Christian when society thinks that you're irrelevant. And their heart in writing this book is to help the church, to give us perspective and some tools. Um, And I say that because I'm about to read an excerpt from the book to you. And I just want you to know that they're not professional church critics. Okay, They're not bashing the church. They've done a lot of research. And this is some of the conclusions. These are some of the conclusions they've found. In the book, they say, it's not enough to be nice. When it comes to conversations about beliefs, morals, and faith, Christians have often emphasized the importance of being winsome and engaging. The thinking driven by the right impulse is that if Christians could be really nice about things, then others would at least respect the people behind the beliefs. It's no longer sufficient for Christians to be winsome. Being winsome is not bad, it's good, but aiming for niceness as our ultimate goal can give us a false sense of making a difference in people's lives. Many of the basic ideas Christians believe are perceived as irrelevant and extreme. Nice doesn't overcome the perception that Christians are crazy. More and more people think the Christian community is completely out of step with the times. And no matter how kind or friendly believers are in presenting their beliefs, it's not likely to make much of a difference. Many folks have their minds made up that Christian ideas are outlandish. These people might listen for entertainment's sake, But Christians have little chance of breaking through to real understanding. I think that one of the most loving things that we can do is seek to understand our neighbors, to understand our neighbors, to understand what they think of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is one of the most loving things that we can do. Because if we believe that the Bible is real, If we believe that Jesus died for our sins and the world around us thinks that that's crazy and extreme, we've got some work to do. A few years ago, I was living in San Francisco and growing up when I was younger, it was my dream to live there for a season. And I always thought that would be so awesome to live in the city. But even as a kid growing up in the Sacramento area, a few hours north, whenever San Francisco was talked about, especially amongst Christians, it was always talked about as if it's this place like Nineveh in the story of Jonah, right? Or Sodom and Gomorrah, or this this godless place. The people are really far from God and um, they're not interested in Christianity. But I always felt like, man, the gospel is so powerful. It works everywhere. There's no place that the gospel can't take root, that there aren't people 
that, that can see God and come to know God. And so when I had this opportunity to live there, some of my roommates and I, we were all Christians, we decided, hey, we're going to start a Bible study. And I said, let's start a Bible study for people who don't believe in God. Okay, and, and we're going to call it a meetup, and we're going to invite people to join us to explore spirituality through the lens of Jesus. And so we had a happy hour at 6, then we had discussion at 7, and one of the stipulations was, is, hey, we're not, we're not starting this for other Christians. We're starting this to create a safe place where people can explore faith, not be uh, confused by Christianese. Come on, we all know that's a thing, Right? <laughs> And not be confused, not, not feel judged, not feel like there are barriers to them, that there's questions that they can't ask or, or that they'd be afraid of, of how they might be, be viewed or judged. Okay, so we started this, and it was so cool. Like, we were going to uh, places, and there was a sense of mission everywhere we were because we were really owning it. And so we'd be at the park, and we'd meet people and invite them. I, was, I remember being at a bar watching the Super Bowl, and I invited this guy, and he started coming. And the next thing you know... There were over 30 of us gathering weekly for an entire spring to have this meetup to explore spirituality through the lens of Jesus. And it was amazing to look around and see all these people who don't identify as Christian, who aren't followers of Jesus, talking about Jesus. And so I share that story with you to encourage you because I know and I believe that God's raising up people in our community that he's going to give fresh ideas to, ways that we can connect with the culture around us. In 1 Chronicles 13, 32, it talks about a tribe called Issachar who understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. So this is what God is calling us to be, a tribe that is gonna reach people who are not interested in Jesus and we're gonna maybe be the, the first impression of authentic Christianity that they've ever had. And we're gonna be a place where those conversations can happen. We're going to be people that close the gap, a person who will meet others where they're at and bring them to Jesus. Um, our mission here at Brave is to help people find and follow Jesus. And so my story, like I shared with you, I just shared that to encourage you. It's just one of the ways that I found to be effective where I was living. And I'm so excited to see all of the ways that God's going to use us to bring people to Jesus. But today, I want to focus on something different. Today, I want to focus on one thing that I believe is the starting point. And this is in your notes. To close the gaps around us, we must close the gaps within us. Gandhi said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. There's a work that God wants to do within us before he does a great work through us. And it's this work within us that prepares us to be a bridge to those in our community. So let's begin looking at the gap that we live in. Um, so the people that Paul was writing to, they had quite a gap. In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, one of Creed's own prophets described the people of Crete this way. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So Titus had a huge challenge on his hands. Titus was the only church planter that Paul wrote a personal letter to to help him out. Like Timothy got a letter, but he took over an existing church. So here Titus is, 
probably not in your dream destination to start a church when you read how these people are being described. And here's Paul. He's going, man, this guy, he needs some help. You know, liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This doesn't sound fun. But here's the thing. For God so loved the world. God loved these people. And he loved them so much that he sent Titus to tell them about his son. And so Titus's job was to teach them the way. Paul leads off this chapter saying they needed to remember some things. In verses 1 through 3, we see, we see two lists, a list of vices and a list of virtues. And on the virtues list, we have to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. These are the virtues that he's describing as a follower of Jesus. And then on the vices list, we have foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures, malice, envy, hated, and hating everyone. So in other words, Paul is feeling that they need to be reminded of the difference between life before Christ and life with Christ. And I think it's safe to say that some of these people were struggling. Like there was a gap between who they were and who they were becoming. They were living in between. In other words, raising your hand and confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, coming to church regularly, maybe joining a home church, or even being baptized, all of these things didn't instantaneously make them perfect people, didn't make them perfect followers of Christ. So what about us? Do we live in a gap? Are there gaps in our lives? Are there things that we should stop doing? Maybe you've recently started following Jesus, meaning you're just coming under and learning what it means to come under the lordship of, of Christ, which is the authority. Lordship means whole life controller. It means that every desire, every impulse, every thought, everything you do is placed under the authority of Christ. It means that he is in charge now. So when you made the decision to follow Jesus, did you think that you would go overnight from foolish to wise, or from disobedient to obedient, from chasing pleasure to living purposefully? Did you think that if you struggled with being lazy, that all of a sudden you'd be disciplined? Wouldn't that be great? From being bothered when others have more than you to being happy and content with what you have. Last week, my wife and I got a new car, and we love it. It's a, a Mazda CX-5 small SUV, and it's awesome. Uh, it's our, our first new car, our first big purchase together. And so I remember the other day, uh, well, remember, it was just the other day. My memory is better than that. Uh, the other day, I came home, and I was walking up to our apartment. I just parked in the parking lot, and I saw that my neighbor bought the same car. Not just the same car, but the same color, the same model. Everything was the same, except that my neighbor got the upgraded rims. And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, man, should I have gotten the upgraded rims? And I even told my wife, you can ask her, I was like, man, the only thing I wish this car had was the upgraded rims. And then I see that my neighbor got exactly what I wanted. So, but the point is, I had to check my heart. 
because I, I went from being so happy one minute, so happy with what I had. It was a blessing to be able to buy this car to the next minute. It's like someone having something a little bit better was starting to take away some of my happiness. And I've been following Jesus most of my life, pretty much my whole life, yet that was still a struggle. So we can all identify this tension of these gaps in our lives, these things that aren't just solved overnight because we decided to follow Jesus. It's kind of like trying to, to get fit. You start going to the gym, and you think, man, after a week, I should be ripped, <laughs> right? Why am I not ripped? I've been going for a whole week. And then somebody tells you, you might have to put the pint of Ben and Jerry's down. You're like, I don't know if I want to be ripped anymore, right? <laughs> or they tell you, you have to start buying skinny cow at Whole Foods. Like, what is that? But that's what it's like sometimes when we start following Jesus or we start reading our Bible. We're like, man, I read my Bible for a whole week. Why am I still struggling with anything? I should just be, be a perfect Christian if that even exists, okay? I don't think it does, but that's another message. But I think deep down inside... We all know that significant growth doesn't happen overnight. We grow in spiritual maturity and self-control and relationships over time through faithfulness. So the decision to follow Jesus, it's one step in a lifetime journey. Turn to the person next to you and say, baby steps. Baby steps. We are okay with baby steps around here. But the key is that we keep taking steps. And the truth is, we all live in a gap, even people like the Apostle Paul. In Romans, he said, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. But the thing is with Paul, he recognized this. He recognized the gap. But he didn't just get content with it. He didn't just settle in. He didn't stay stuck. And what he wanted the people of Crete to know is that there were some baby steps or some big steps that they needed to take if they were going to step into everything that God wanted to give them. And it's, it wasn't just about them. God was preparing them to be a blessing to the entire island. But first, there was a work that he wanted to do inside of them. There were some gaps that needed to be closed. And this is God's word to us. And I believe this. If we're going to live in this place, if we're going to be a church in this place where over 9 out of 10 people are not interested in following Jesus, we're going to need to be a people marked by God's grace. We're going to need to be a people that are willing to go deep and are willing to see some gaps closed in our lives that we might stand out, that we might be recognized as having something worth wanting. So maybe you think you've figured some stuff out. Maybe you know a lot about the Bible. Maybe, like me, you've been following Jesus your entire life. Or maybe you're a new Christian, like the people that are being written to on this island. Or maybe you're still on the fence. You're not sure what you believe yet. You're skeptical, and that's okay. But regardless of your position, God's vision for you is the same. He wants to help you become something more than you are right now. And this happens when we more deeply surrender our lives to him. It happens when we want to be changed. And not just for ourselves, 
not just for our families, for our kids or our neighbors, but because we have the revelation that no one will ever love us as much as God does. And the more we receive that love, we can't help but be changed. The Bible says God is love. So the more we surrender to his will, we can trust him. If he's love, we can trust him. We can surrender our lives to his will. And what's going to happen is we're going to become more loving people. So here's an interesting question. What if the people on Crete weren't all that bad? Okay, If they weren't that bad, would they still need God? And if you're a pretty good person, do you still need God? In three of the four Gospels, we find a story about a rich young ruler that ran up to Jesus, and he wanted to know something that I think we all wonder about at some point or another. He wanted to know if his life measured up. He felt like he'd lived a pretty good life, he was a good person, but he wanted to know if he had earned eternal life. And I love the version of this story in Luke because Luke was writing to people who were considered outsiders. So here in Luke 18, we have this rich young ruler, and he's approaching Jesus. And this is what he says. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. So when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus challenged this man's perception of good. He's telling the man, God, uh, good is not something that you can achieve. So think about it. Um, Religious people can do evil things. Evil people can do good things. So being good is nothing that you can achieve apart from God. It's by his mercy, by his grace, that we can even hope to be good. And this passage in Titus, it's all about doing good works. But for many of us, like the Cretan church, God is first concerned with the good work that he's doing within us. And we must be careful not to confuse good works with something that makes us good. Doing good doesn't make us good. The death of the Son of God was the price to become good. Jesus Christ is the only way for any of us to become good. There's a story about an old learned priest who worked tirelessly in the streets of a city nestled deep in the heart of an empire, ruled over by an elderly king. And this priest was greatly respected by all the people, and he would constantly be approached by those who needed help in all manner of issues. And the king of this vast empire had a young son who grew up hating the church. He was disgusted by what he perceived to be its hypocrisy and deception. And so because of this deep hatred, the young prince would often oversee the imprisonment of church leaders and order the breakup of religious gatherings. But his actions also betrayed a deep jealousy. Indeed, he particularly disliked the fact that there was a priest who received the people's respect that he believed was rightly due to him. 
Why should the people be so deceived by this old fool, thought the prince. He's like so many of this type, a cold-hearted liar who sells the people lies in order to live. So the prince harbored a burning desire to put a stop to the priest's work, but he did not want to garner the hatred of the people. So he carefully devised a plan that he believed would expose the hypocrisy of the priest to everyone in the empire once and for all. He's a poor man, thought the prince. I'll offer him a great sum of money in exchange for a public confession concerning his hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of his church. So late one evening, under the cover of darkness, the prince visited the priest, and upon entering his home, he said, I have the power to reach every person in this kingdom through the printed press. For 10,000 rupees, would you write a letter to be dispersed throughout the whole kingdom in telegrams and newspapers, informing people that you are nothing but a liar and a hypocrite? The priest was indeed a poor man who'd been born into poverty and had known nothing but need all of his life. To him, this was a lot of money. He thought carefully for a few minutes before responding. Then he said, I will do as you ask, but only under three conditions. So what are your conditions, replied the prince. First, if I do this, you must leave me and my church alone. Yes, replied the prince. Second, you must release those brothers and sisters of mine who are innocent of any crime. It will be done, replied the prince. And third, what's your third stipulation? He said, well, after a great deal of thought, 10,000 rupees is a lot of money, and I'm but a poor man. You'll have to give me some time to raise it. Here we have two men with two opposite perspectives on what it means to be good. The rich young ruler expended so much energy to appear good in front of others. And the priest, he didn't even try. His biggest concern was how he'd gather up enough money in time to set people free and protect his church. He didn't even get that he was being bribed. What one man saw as an opportunity for justice, another saw as an opportunity to do something good. This authentic prophet, he was a totally different kind of leader. He doesn't repress the fact that he's weak, that he's prone to temptation or fear that people will find out who he really is. Instead, he admits it freely. Like the Apostle Paul, who proclaimed that he was the worst of sinners. People who have allowed God to do a deep work within them have a profound understanding of their weakness, and they're free to acknowledge them. Instead of seeking to be seen as wise, the faithful admit to their foolishness. The power of faith is made known when we recognize our weakness. So how comfortable are you with your weaknesses? Um, In closing, I'm going to invite the band to come and join me. And I want to share with you four actions, four steps to closing the gap. And then we're going to have a worship time and a time to respond and a time to hear from God personally. But these four steps for closing the gap, these were actually the four uh, central um, points to, to the message that started the Welch revival in the early 1900s. These are four things that people responded to. And their entire community, their entire world around them was changed. So what I'm saying with this is that for revival to happen around us, it has to first happen within us. 
And if we take to heart these things, if you really take these things to heart, I think you'll be amazed at what God wants to do in your life, what he's capable of doing in your life. The first one is to confess every known sin. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. When you confess your sins to God, you are instantly forgiven. But when you're brave enough to confess your sins to another, you find healing. It is amazing. When you, when you get that off your chest, when you share that, and what you're doing, when you, when you get to that place, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to stop trying to be good. I'm going to rest in the goodness of God. I'm going to recognize where my good reputation comes from, and it's not from what I'm able to achieve. The second thing is remove every doubtful habit. Is there anything you're doing regularly that you feel doubtful about, that you think, man, um, this is wrong, or maybe I'm not sure if it's wrong, but maybe it's not so beneficial. And if that's how you feel about something, spend some time. Again, we're going to worship in a minute. Spend some time. Ask God. Ask him to bring those things to the surface because we want things in our lives that are going to close the gap. And if there are any habits for us, nobody's judging you. No one's telling you what those things are. For one person, it could be an addiction. For someone else, it could be too much Netflix, right? Anybody been there? Anybody? This summer? No? Okay. You guys have great habits. Number three, obey the the Holy Spirit's promptings. When was the last time you felt like you were supposed to do something and you knew that it was a God idea, it was bigger than yourself, and you followed through with that? And if you did, you probably have a really cool story that I'd love to hear. And maybe you didn't, but right now, I I just want to say to you, that was God. That was something you're supposed to do. And when you live each day open and aware of the opportunities that God wants to bring your way, the things that he's showing you to do, faith becomes an adventure. It's so exciting. So number three, obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And number four, go public with your faith. And I'd just like to invite you right now to bow your heads. This is a time uh, between you, me, and Jesus And if you're here today and you've been skeptical and you're not sure what you believe and you're not sure what what can make you good, but you're hearing this message and love is being revealed to you, a new way is being revealed to you, and you say, I want what Jesus has to offer. I want to make him Lord of my life. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to point you out. But between you, me, and Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand so that I know that you're making that decision and I can pray with you this morning. That is awesome. That is awesome. Man, hands are all over the room right now. You can can put them down. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, let's try that again. Dear Jesus, let's all repeat this together. Thank you for saving me. Today I make you Lord of my life. I recognize that you're more than a tradition. I recognize you're more than something that makes me better. That you are my savior and that you have a purpose for my life. From here to eternity, Amen. Amen. Well, hey, what we're going to do right now is
is we're going to transition into a time of worship. We're going to sing a few songs. Um, But I just want to say, as we move into this time, be reflective. Stay prayerful. This is a a, a time for you to just pause, to be in the presence of God. And we have a prayer team that's available every Sunday. But today, they're going to be right over there in the corner. And often, I feel like this kind of goes unnoticed. People don't take advantage of the prayer team that's available for them. I like to think of it as free samples at Costco. Like, who doesn't love those, right? I'm like, how are people just passing on an opportunity to be encouraged, to be prayed for? Nobody's judging you. If you go get prayer, we're not imagining the worst sin you could have possibly done, okay? But it is a place where you can confess. It's safe. You know, it's a place where you can be encouraged or maybe there's some things God's prompting you to do, but you need some bravery. You need someone else to come alongside you and say, God sees you and and he's with you. Amen. So let's worship together.